I want to begin this morning by reading from Mark's Gospel, uh, verses 2 through 6, and it goes like this. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. I want to set the stage for you. This is the same man that they just watched die three days earlier. This is the same moment where they are overwhelmed with grief and sorrow because their friend, their close, their master, their teacher, has died on a cross and all hope is gone, and they make their way to the tomb, which is customary with spices and herbs to continue to prepare the body through this seven-day window of mourning, which is part of their traditions. And on this particular day when they arrive, everything about their life changes. Everything about human history changes in this moment. Jesus being raised from the dead means that the problem of death has now been solved. It means that God, His Father, through His Spirit, has taken a human being, someone who has succumbed to death, and brought them back to life again. That all of the things of the way of life that we used to think, that we used to believe, now in this moment, everything is being rewritten. Something that is dead has come back to life. It is this moment. If you know church history at all, this is when we become a resurrection people. This is when we become people known as followers of the way. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be Mary, to be the disciples, on the news that their best friend, who was killed on Friday, is now living again. There would be this sense of joy, of like, I can't believe this is true. This incredible mixture of every emotion you could possibly fathom. And then they see him, and they talk with him. And 500 other people see him, and they talk with him. And no doubt there are jokes to be told. No doubt there are stories that he shares. And Thomas arrives a little late to the scene, and he's like, I don't, I don't believe this, because dead people don't live again. And Jesus is like, well, actually they do, because I'm here. And here are my hands, and here are my side, and you can touch them, Thomas, and see for yourself. And Thomas puts his hands on the marks, and his whole life changes. The resurrected Christ transitions all of human history from old Jerusalem, a place where suffering and struggle and death reign, to a space where new life is very real inside new Jerusalem. I want to put a quote on the screen. This is from one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, and he reminds us of what the first Christians thought and believed. He says this, the early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what He had done in Jesus at Easter. I want to read that again. The early Christians, so the first group of people that were called Christians in and around 40, 35-ish A.D., this group of people, they believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what He had done in Jesus at Easter. The two dominant reasons why the first Christians believe this is because Jesus spoke of this at length all through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of these moments, Jesus is kind of on record talking about this new thing that God is going to do in the world that begins with Him. 
And when Jesus gets up from the dead being raised by His Father, this is why Paul and other writers talk about Jesus being the firstborn of the dead. In other words, everybody in human history dies. And from all the people that are dead, Jesus is the firstborn from this group. And everyone who follows Christ by faith, they too will follow Jesus as being people who are born from the dead. Jesus is going to do for the whole of creation this thing that began in His life some 2,000 years ago. The second dominant reason why early Christians and Christians through time believe this to be true is found in the book that we've been studying since January in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21 and 22, it unpacks the coming reality of the cosmos being made new at length. And we're going to spend some time here this morning. And it all begins with this little line in 21.1. Again, for those of you that haven't been following along with us, this is this incredible vision that God grants John while he is stuck on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea where, where God is giving him glimpses of all the things that have happened in the past, all the things that are happening in the present, and all the things that are going to be happening out into the future. And in Revelation 21.1, this is speaking out to a day that's in front of us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And before we move on from that, I need you to understand this is not something that God's going to do that's brand spanking new. God isn't going to make a new earth. He's going to take this one, the one that He has declared good thousands of years ago, and He's going to make it new again. He is going to do for this earth and all of the cosmos this thing that He's done in His own Son Bring it alive again. Make it the way that it's supposed to be again. I want to take a few moments this morning and describe the coming reality that John sees in this vision that he wrote down that we've been talking about now in the church for some 2,000 years. And this is for individuals that have made decisions of faith connected to who Jesus is. And anyone can participate in this. But this is describing the coming reality for those who follow the Lamb around wherever He goes. To use a phrase that comes out of Revelation 6. And it describes this new Jerusalem. Right away, God tells John and the church by extension and you and I here this morning that there's a day coming where there's no longer any sea. And it's not talking about a space where there's no water. It's this image that begins in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the Scriptures that when you see sea, you see chaos, you see suffering, you see struggle, you see uncertainty, you see all kinds of, kind of these like dark emotions connected to this phrase sea. And here it's, and all of this is gone. There'll be no longer any uncertainty. There's no longer any struggle and suffering. All of these realities connected to this image of sea throughout the Scriptures are gone and they are pushed away. The line that really speaks to this clearly is where it reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Second, there is this incredible description in Revelation 21-22 about this city, this new Jerusalem that God is bringing to this earth one day coming in the future. It's described as though it's a city with high walls. And most scholars would simply say, this is this image that all that is wrong with the world, all that is evil, all that is dark will be walled out 
to never enter again. All that is broken, all that is sinful, all that is evil will be walled out and those who love Christ will live in this environment where all that is dark, all that is evil is just gone and removed from the world. To further this, this city, this new Jerusalem, it's described as though it's built on 12 gates, which has, or sorry, 12 foundations and 12 gates. And again, most biblical scholars would point to the fact that this is a reference or parallel image to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Because it's from these groups of people that we learn about God. And this coming reality, all that we know, all that we've been told about who God is, have come from people connected to these groups of twelve. And in this new Jerusalem, we will see all of these things come to fruition in its full. It is going to be an incredible, incredible space. One of the very interesting kind of dimensions or other qualities of this city, this new reality, there's this reference to 12,000 stadia. And ironically enough, this is a measurement. And it's speaking to the size and scope of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at that time for these seven churches, you might as well say, this is the world as they know it. Everything about their life is described and defined by the Roman Empire. This, this vast landmass that's equivalent to 12,000 stadia. And the new city that God is preparing is going to be 12,000 stadia. In other words, all of the whole world that you know and understand is going to be displaced by this new reality that God is going to bring about on this wonderful day out in the future when the rider appears, the one who is faithful and true. And this is where God's sons and daughters will dwell. But here's the best part of it all. And this is woven into Revelation 21-22. There's this description of this cube-like shape inside this new city that God is bringing about. Well, if you know the Bible at all, if you go way back into the Old Testament, when they were given instruction to build the temple, there is a cube-like structure inside the temple. And it belongs to the most sacred place, this room called the Holy of Holies, which is where God dwelt among His people. Out in this coming reality, this is simply an image, this parallel to say, God will dwell with His people. And that reality is the crown jewel of it all. I don't care about 12 gates. It doesn't matter the foundations. I don't care about the Jew. I don't care about... It's like God dwells with His people. He will be our God and we will celebrate and walk with and experience what it's like to be in His presence forever and always with no more sin and no more sorrow and no more struggle and no more death. It is here completely made new on this earth by and through His Son. This thing that began in Jesus that first Easter, Christians believe that God is going to do this for the whole cosmos where God will dwell with His people again. In Revelation 21.3, it reads this, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them, and He will be their God. And listen, this, this should not surprise us. This has been God's goal from the beginning. 
In the Garden of Eden, God creates all things and declares it good and wonderful. And Adam and Eve walk with God in this life-giving, up-and-to-the-right experience and relationship with the living God. And Adam and Eve opt for something else. They want to do life their own way. They want to be their own gods. And they walk away from God, which ushers in sin and death, which you and I continue to experience on an ongoing daily basis. Some of you in this room in the last several days and weeks, you've experienced the sting of what that's like in broken relationships, in sickness in family, and on and on and on it goes. We live in this space. And Christ enters the scene and says there's a day coming where it's going to be vastly different. And that's the day where we will dwell with the living God forever and ever and ever. And this has been His goal from the moment we walked away from Him. And if you track through the Scriptures, you see this God moving towards His people to dwell with them in one way or another. And you see it early. Where God comes to people like Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And He kind of has these moments of dwelling beside them and close to them. And then it kind of goes through this upgrade as you work your way through the story. After God rescues them and brings them out of the land of Egypt, God dwells with His people by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke through the day as Israel kind of wanders through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. God is dwelling with His people. And then He tells them to go make this kind of lavish tent. And inside this tent, which we call the tabernacle, God dwells with His people in this place. And then as they make their way to the promised land, they build a temple and God dwells inside the Holy of Holies. And this is where His people come and they gather and they dwell with and they worship and they celebrate the living God. And not only that, the nations from the surrounding world, they travel to Jerusalem to see the God of David and Solomon and so on. And then as you work your way through the Old Testament, there's another upgrade coming where prophets begin to say there's a day coming where God will dwell with us. And we get ready for this every Christmas in the word Emmanuel where God will be with us. And that first Christmas in Bethlehem when Jesus is born, God becomes just like us to dwell with us. And He takes on and learns our infirmities, this struggle of what it's like to live in a world that's broke. And He heads to the cross and before He dies, He has a conversation with His best friends where He says, listen, I'm not going to be with you for much longer, but there's something better coming. When I die and when I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to go back to be with my Father, but I'm going to send my Spirit and He will dwell with you. And it goes through this another layer, this another development of how God dwells in the hearts of the men and women who love Him, who follow Him. How the Spirit is actively working in the world trying to draw all men and all women to who He is. And before He goes away and before He tells us about the Holy Spirit, He says, oh, by the way, I'm going to send my Spirit, but there's another day coming where just as I leave, I'm going to return. And this is the day that we're talking about. This day where the rider appears, the one faithful and true, when he returns, God now dwells with us. This has been his goal all the way along. Working tirelessly through people, through time, to bring it to a space where you and I, men and women who love Christ, who follow the Lamb around wherever He goes, there is a day coming where He will dwell with us and we with Him, and it will be incredibly perfect, 
made right, where sin and suffering is all gone. The church then, 2,000 years ago, the church now, this is what we believe. In fact, you remove the conversation of the end of all things and Christ returning, we're not Christians. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but that is not the climax of God's activity in human history. The climax is His return. When all that is wrong with this world will be stomped out and removed. And those who know Christ will live with and dwell with Him forever, where we will, according to Revelation, reign and rule with Him in this place. I believe, as I I know many of you do here this morning, that what God did in His Son that first Easter, He's going to do for the whole of the cosmos. That what He did in His Son, He has started to do in me already. He started to do in many of you as well. That one day I will be made new in every way. This is our hope. This is what holds us when struggle and suffering arise. This is what grounds us through seasons of difficulty. Getting ready for this morning, we had an opportunity to talk to two of our individuals. We showed part one of their story on Good Friday, and for those of you that weren't here, we're going to show it again, but it kind of rolls over into all that I've been saying. And through the stories of Beth and Jill, you'll hear this same heart of one day, there's a day coming where all things will be made new. Watch the screen and enjoy. We're in this world that is full of suffering and sadness and pain. And when I was young, I went through a really difficult time, Um, probably starting with experiencing a ton of rejection from my peers, like through, through the school years, the early years, middle years, late years of school. And this, this extreme rejection kind of put me on this path of um, feeling inferior, doubting myself, um, feeling like I didn't belong anywhere, and feeling alone and um, really troubled. So July 6th last year, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four colorectal colorectal cancer metastasized to the liver Um, because there was multiple multitude of spots on my liver surgery was ruled out Um, so I fairly quickly started chemo in July of last year and that continued I went every second week until about the end of November um, when I took a break so that we could go spend the holidays with our kids at West it led to me choosing to make choices that were not um, in keeping with what God's best would be for my life. And I refer to my 20s as the dark decade, this dark decade of um, wandering and searching and discontent and unhappiness, but making choices that I thought would make me happy, but which pulled me further and further apart from God. Uh, the biggest struggle for me is when you tell 
your husband, your children, your mother, your siblings, your friends, that you've got um, cancer, uh, you know, terminal cancer. It's like watching a tsunami wash over them. So while I contemplate uh, the things to come and the life to come, they're waiting for bad news. And so I sometimes struggle with um, feeling guilty about putting them through that. And it left me feeling bereft. Bereft of peace, bereft of contentment. I had had, I've always had a deep love for Jesus. I've always known in my heart of hearts that God is who he says he is, that I am separated from God and that I need a savior. I've always known this in my heart of hearts. I believe that during these years where I chose paths that were not at all what his best would be for me, knowingly choosing these paths, that he, through his grace and love and mercy, sustained me, protected me, carried me, saw me through, fully seeing the end. And even in my rebellion, he was gracious towards me. When you think of like Jill being completely made new again, all of that is removed. Relief. I feel this like overwhelming feeling of relief and peace that finally, you know, all that we do to seek happiness and all we do to, to try to make our lives complete, it just pales in comparison to what God has for us. So looking forward to the New Jerusalem is exciting because it's, besides being in the uh, permanent presence uh, of Christ, it's the restoration of everything to the way it was supposed to be. To be free from that, to, to be free from the curse, to be free from what binds us. The thing I'm most looking forward to is this perfect peace, like no more questioning, no more doubts, no more fear, no more anxieties, no more wondering, second guessing, and is this true, and what do I know, and who do I belong to, what's my identity in Christ, and all of that is just made perfect. And I believe that I've experienced glimpses of the New Jerusalem. Like my salvation alone is a glimpse of the New Jerusalem that God would save a sinner such as I who chose rebellion and wooed me and drew me back to him and fostered this love of Jesus 
All of that is him. I could not orchestrate any of that myself. So I know I've seen glimpses of the New Jerusalem. Until the New Jerusalem comes, I kind of just hang on to that, that he's still here, he's still working. And through people and through us, and we're all part of that working process to um, let his kingdom be here on earth as it is in heaven. And we're part of that, and that's what we're working towards. Um, I'm excited. I'm really excited to be reunited with the people I love who have gone before me. My father died this year. I can't wait to see the harvester again. I can't wait to see my grandparents. But even in those moments where I think about the excitement of being reunited with the people I love, I think of the Fanny Crosby song where she talks about all the glories of heaven. But then she says, I long to meet my savior first of all. That's what I'm most excited for. I cannot wait to see Jesus face to face. I cannot wait to experience for myself his glory, his majesty, his love, his mercy, and this fully enveloping feeling of peace and complete perfection. That's what I'm most excited for. I long to meet my Savior first of all and how awesome and perfect it's all going to be.